So, I, without any further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce our keynote speaker. Our keynote speaker today is Joanne Imick, and Joanne is a very interesting person. Can I call you Jo? Is that all right? Yes. She, she's a freelance writer, a researcher, speaker, and photographer. She is a coordinator of the National Toxic Network Incorporated. She's a policy advisor, well, she has been a policy advisor, and a toxic chemicals campaigner. Total Environment Centre, New South Wales. Wow. Uh, her background is, I think you'd say, biological environment, environmental biology. Got that round the wrong way. She had a degree, did a degree in environmental biology, and she's done work with drug toxicity, tox toxicology. She's involved currently with NICNAS Strategic Consultative Committee. She's an Australian Environmental Network representative working to improve public access to chemical safety information. Address aspects, she also addresses aspects of the community's right to know in relation to the control and use of industrial chemicals. She's been on many committees and um, she was involved in a community engagement forum with Nick Nass. So I think her publications are very impressive too. I'd like you to welcome Jo Imig. She's our keynote speaker. Thank you, Jo. Thank you, Janet. And um, thank you all. Good morning. It's a great uh, honour and pleasure to be here. I'm going to be taking my glasses on and off. I'm sorry. They're new. <laughs> I need them for reading, but... I might not. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's a great honour to be here, and already I've heard this morning so many exciting initiatives that are happening, and that gives me a lot of encouragement, notwithstanding the severity of the problem that faces us. So um, I won't go on any more about my background, except to say it sounds like I'm spreading myself way too thinly. Um, I've got cute pictures just to lighten up because toxic chemicals is a pretty um, drastic topic to talk about. But first, to the National Toxics Network, which is the organisation that I'm the coordinator of, um, our mission is uh, aligned with the global environmental health uh, movement, which is a toxic-free future for all. Um, that is a, a monumentally difficult task, as is uh, us having to address climate change. I have to say, underlying a lot of the issues that we deal with in climate change uh, is always an invisible toxic chemical issue. And it just seems to be where we've developed an area of expertise and where I think we can really help the debate and help all the projects that go on, for example. Often when we set out to do the right thing, we um, end up doing something that we didn't anticipate that might not be a particularly beneficial thing to do, for example. So NTN's here to help with that sort of thing. We're a national umbrella organisation for groups and individuals working on toxic chemical pollution issues in Australia and the Pacific. So we do quite a lot of work with our Pacific neighbours um, where they have really significant uh, issues as well in, in small islands. And we're also the uh, Australian focal point for the International POPs Elimination Network. And that's another organisation that's working globally um, to rid the world of persistent organic pollutants. And they're a particular type of chemical that is very persistent, bioaccumulative and toxic. Our current issues of concern 
uh, that we're working on include climate change and its impacts because, not only because of the obvious reasons, but because with the melting of ice uh, in the uh, polar regions comes the remobilization of persistent chemicals that have previously been trapped in the ice. So when we pollute, a lot of those uh, pollutants travel the globe and end up in the cooler poles on the earth and they're locked into the ice. So when we do ice cores and things, we can literally measure our polluting past and sadly it is those people that live in those regions, like Inuits for example, who um, have extremely high levels of persistent organic pollutants in their bodies and are, are told to do things like not breastfeed their babies because of the level of contamination they have. We're very involved, as you've heard, in the reform process to the industrial uh, chemical regulation and also pesticide protections in Australia. And I'll go into that in a little bit in a minute. We're very involved at the moment with um, chemical pollution issues such as PFAS. They're the perfluorinated group of chemicals and you may have seen that in the media. It's to do with the firefighting foams that are used on defence force sites and in airports and unfortunately the chemical that's traditionally been used in those firefighting foams is terribly persistent, terribly toxic, leaches into groundwater and is now popping up in communities who are building their houses or have built their houses on old Defence Force site lands and they're being exposed. We're very interested in pharmaceutical pollution because it's a major problem and also the massive um, issue that we're facing with marine plastic pollution. Um, I've also been very actively involved in um, waste to energy incineration technology proposals across Australia. There's a massive one currently proposed for Western Sydney that we've been working with the community there to help them um, reject that proposal because it's uh, an extremely polluting industry. I'll get onto that in a minute too. Of course, we um, have done a lot of work on fracking and unconventional gas extraction and everyday toxic consumer products is something um, is, is something that we deal with all the time and is a great way to interface with people who are just new to this topic. It's a spaghetti junction who regulates chemicals in Australia. Um, a lot of people have the myth that if it's not on the if it's on the shelves, somebody must have looked at it somewhere. It's simply not the case. Um, but I'm not trying to say we don't have any regulation. It's just it's a spaghetti junction. So NICNAS, very quickly, is the uh, regulator that covers the uh, broad range of industrial chemicals that occur in many everyday uh, items that we use. The APVMA is the regulator that covers pesticides and um, veterinary medicines and so on. The TGA, the Therapeutic Goods uh, Administration, covers medicines, medical devices, fizzants, food, and the ACCC is meant to be our, you know, our safeguard between us and um, corporations and people selling their products and our own safety so um, we can go to them when there's problems. There's loopholes in every in every one of these organisations um, and it's we've spent a lot of time um, interfacing at that level wanting to achieve systemic change and um, unfortunately under the current government we're having very little success. In terms of industrial chemical pollution, you really need no other measure of the failure of our current approach than the fact that babies are born with over 200 industrial chemical residues in their body before they take their fir first breath on planet Earth. I just find that the most shocking fact. Um, it's, it's really um, says so much about the way, I've said that 
quoted another forum, for example, and one of the indus chemical industry people said to me, so what? And I said, well, it's, it's a really big deal because those chemicals actually do accumulate. In the, as we move through generations, they're getting worse and worse and worse, and we don't know what the implications are for the health effects, but we suspect that it's not good because many of those chemicals we do know to be harmful. There are 38,000 industrial chemicals on the Australian inventory of chemical substances which were grandfathered into the scheme in the 90s and they have not been assessed for their health and environmental impacts. I'm not making that up. That is the fact. There are 38,000 chemicals in common use in Australia that have never been looked at for their health and environmental impacts. It's devastating and it's equally devastating that those new reforms proposed for that regulator are going to make that situation worse. And when it comes to the management of industrial chemicals, history has repeatedly shown us that the chemicals that we were told were low risk turn out to be the toxic chemical disasters of the future. We thought DDT was safe, it wasn't, so on and so on. Um, the current NICNAS reforms, which, um, with, which Brett mentioned and which Janet mentioned, and I'm the bunny who's been sitting on the... <laughs> representing the environment movement on the two and a half years of consultations that have been going on and along with the Cancer Council and unions and other very interested and activated uh, community representatives we've done everything we could possibly do to bring our concerns to government to see if we could get them to change the way they intend to reform this regulator and we've I can't say we've had zero success because it currently hasn't been through the Senate. It's been through the House of Representatives, the legislation. So who knows what might happen. But um, the, our assessment of what's happening is, our collective assessment with all those organisations I just mentioned, is that we're going to have diminished protections for public health and in the, env the environment. That 70 to 90% of new chemicals, and there's about 10,000 new chemicals come into Australia every year, will be self-assessed by industry as low-risk chemicals, so they'll define, uh, they'll define what they consider to be low risk and then the industry will be able to self-assess those chemicals. The regulator will no longer keep records for so-called low risk chemicals and we weren't able to get them to understand the idea that we can't have an unending appetite for risk. risk. We can't say we can risk manage everything, it just goes on and on and on their idea that we can risk manage. There are many failures in the the chain of risk management with chemicals in Australia. And we need some lines in the sand. We need to say, if there's safer alternatives, then we don't want carcinogens introduced into Australia. We don't want chemicals that bioaccumulate or that cause hormone disruption. If we've got safer alternatives and we can do things differently, then let's do that. Let's say we don't want those chemicals. But it seems to be a very hard concept to get through. There's also going to be reduced transparency positive things about it. We've got bans coming for the testing of cosmetic chemicals on animals, which is excellent. And w the regulator will actually have more power, even though it's reduced power in some ways, it's going to have more, it will actually finally get the power to actually say, we can ban a chemical, because currently they don't have that, that capacity. They can't say, this chemical is so toxic, we're going to ban it, but they will be able to. So one of the issues for us is pharmaceutical pollution, and I'm sure that's one that you're all interested in as well. We actually had one of our uh, members do an in-depth research project on this, and what we discovered was that um, at least 70% of the pharmaceutical doses excre excreted in the urine, and where does that go? 
Um, we have over 200 different pharmaceuticals um, that have been detected in aquatic environments, including the antibiotics and so on. But the, the key problem there is that that biosolids, that material, that urine and feces that end up at the sewage treatment plant, 195,000 tonnes of that every year is spread on agricultural land. And there's no regulation of pharmaceuticals in biosolids. So we're not checking biosolids for pharmaceuticals and saying those levels are too high, we shouldn't be putting that on our agricultural land where we're growing food. Wastewater uh, treatment plants are not designed have not been designed to remove or treat pharmaceutical pollution and it can have uh, effects at very low levels, very low levels that um, we're exposed to in the environment. It can be endocrine disrupting, can increase antibiotic resistance, uh, can have chemical mixture effects. When you put a whole bunch of chemicals together, um, they can actually be synergistic or at least additive and, and have um, multiplied effects and they can be persistent. What we determined was we need to find some binding regulations um, to pharmaceutical pollutants and recycled water. We need to stop the use of biosolids as fertiliser until we can figure out how to keep it cleaner. And we need to invest in the development and use of uh, advanced wastewater treatment systems that remove and degrade pharmaceutical pollutants. That may well be something, um, an area where I'm not familiar with, with what goes in hospitals, uh, how the wastewater is treated, I'm not certain. Um, and through the World Health Organization's uh, pro program on the rational use of medicines and how we uh, can look at ways of uh, minimising disposal um, and in the um, use of them. Um, you've probably all heard about... I'm sorry my uh, slides are dense with information. I know you're not supposed to do that. But um, there's just so much to get to get through. But the, um, the United Nations has basically called marine plastic pollution the new toxic time bomb. And my, because microplastics have a large surface area to volume ratio, they actually attract and accumulate the persistent organic pollutants that I mentioned earlier onto that surface. So not only do we have the problem of the plastic itself being a pollutant and it's made of chemicals, but we have this background level of persistent organic pollutants in the ocean like mercury, PCBs and DDT and so on that's attracted to the plastic and accumulates. So when the animal eats it, it's getting a huge dose over time of that pollution and then finally it makes its way to humans. So when we eat the seafood, we're at the top of that food chain, we're actually getting a huge dose of persistent organic pollutants along with the plastic. Um, probably cover all that there. So we need to stop all those land-based sources of marine plastic pollution. It's so obvious to us we wish like many things that the government would just get on and do it, like banning single-use plastic bags, banning, banning plastic microbeads in personal care products, and also banning the release, mass release of balloons. Uh, when they do uh, audits and assessment of the sort of plastic pollution that they find in animals, unfortunately, all of those things, uh, particularly balloons and um, plastic bags, are devastating not only to aquatic organisms but to birds and it's having a massive impact on wildlife. We need to introduce nationally consistent container deposit legislation to address plastic beverage litter. 
it's um, absolutely insane the number of plastic bottles that get consumed yearly and how many of them actually end up in the environment. And um, a container deposit legislation, which is coming into New South Wales um, and other states, is um, a good step towards uh, encouraging people to at least not litter those um, objects, but uh, also we need to look at ways of um, minimising our use of them. Something that we've been trying to get the government to do for years is actually ratify um, the POPs chemicals that are put onto the Stockholm Convention. So there's a thing called the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants. Sorry, there's so many acronyms and terms and things. Um, but that's a great global um, convention. It was actually the, the convention that started when um, we had to address the hole in the ozone, if you remember. And we've gone on from then to address other global pollutants or pollutants without passports, as we call them. But the Australian government uh, won't ratify, even though we're a party to the convention, we've signed the convention and we're supposed to abide by its rules and outcomes. We won't ratify, which means that we're not taking the uh, management actions that we need to take in Australia to address those pollution pollutants. And we also need to urgently address the inadequate regulation of industrial chemicals. As I said, 38,000 still unassessed. Waste to energy incineration, which was actually the issue that got the, um, the global healthcare without harm movement going because of medical incineration of waste and the air pollution that that creates and the toxic fly ash problem that that creates. So at the moment, the waste to energy incineration industry, which is a corporate sort of global uh, industry, is sweeping across Australia, um, picking up on the fact that we're running out of landfill space and that um, big cities are struggling to deal with their waste and proposing massive incinerators to burn our waste under the guise of creating renewable energy and actually attracting uh, government renewable energy certificates and taxpayer subsidies in order to do so. Um, needless to say, incinerating waste, uh, despite the fact that obviously the technology has improved and there is air pollution control equipment, and it does go on in other parts of the world, but needless to say, it is very uh, clear with all the studies that are done that it releases huge amounts of toxic pollutants to the air including dioxins and furans and um, HCBs, which are uh, deadly chemicals for us all to be exposed to. And also the new area of like nanoparticles, which we know so little about, and toxic heavy metals. Just out of interest, um, for every one tonne of contaminated, uh, sorry, for every four tonne of waste that you burn, you get one tonne of contaminated fly ash, which still has to go to a hazardous waste landfill. So when people sort of propose this as a solution to landfill, um, that just doesn't stack up either. either. And from a climate perspective, it's actually the dirtiest form of energy production there could possibly be. It produces more carbon dioxide per unit of energy than coal, oil or gas-fired power stations. So um, what we're proposing is that we need to adopt at all levels, and I could see even in with, with your programs that we really need to define um, in Australia zero waste strategies and goals, 
and it's really the container that um, captures all of our waste reduction efforts because we've been we get a bit sidetracked when we think we're recycling that we've solved a problem but actually there can be problems still with recycling recycling is also um, subject to the to market forces and some of you might have seen that four corners program recently where it, it raised a lot of doubts about what was happening with recycling so it's not to say that recycling is not a good thing, it's great, but it needs to be seen in the container of zero waste management. And um, at the top of that hierarchy is obviously redesigning and not creating waste in the first place whenever we can. Um, that, by the way, is the actual image for the um, waste incinerator proposed. It's missing its two 100-metre stacks. It wouldn't fit in there for um, Eastern Creek. It's proposed to be the biggest waste incinerator in the world and uh, it has about eight schools within two kilometres of it. So we need to support incentives for what we call cool technologies. So we think of incinerators as hot technologies, so cool technologies such as composting when we can and anaerobic digestion and other solutions for waste that do not involve combusting it and creating air pollution. We need to adopt those zero waste principles in legislation. We need to introduce the National Container Deposit and Extended Producer Responsibility legislation and promote zero waste principles in industrial design and, and at every level we can. I'm, not go I'm going to skip over these because I thought I was speaking a little earlier and I was going to cover some of the healthcare without harm and uh, global green hospitals initiatives, but that's been well covered, so I won't go into that other than to say, um, once again, that it was with interest that it began with the issue of medical waste incineration. They have had uh, many success stories, and uh, one of them that I'll highlight, because it's in our area of concern, which was um, mercury substitution, which we uh, need to continue on with around the world. Um, it's been a 15-year campaign for them to phase out mercury-based medical devices and uh, substitute them with safer alternatives. Um, I'm sure you're well aware already that many products used in healthcare contribute to hazardous exposures, including cleaners and disinfectants, phthalates in medical devices, uh, flame retardants in furniture and electronic equipment, formaldehyde in furniture, and solvents in labs, among many others. And that's something to bear in mind when you are thinking about your recycling programs. Always need to have in the back of your mind um, that question of, is is this thing I'm trying to recycle um, able to be recycled and is it going to contribute down the line to further problems? For example, we are investigating, not to say it's a bad thing, but we haven't come to a conclusion yet, about the, the reuse of plastic to make plastic objects like um, park bench seating or fencing if that plastic that it comes from itself is already contaminated with things that we know are toxic and toxic at very low levels. So phthalates, for example, or brominated flame retardants are groups of chemicals that are hormonally active and uh, extremely uh, biologically significant, even at extremely small doses. So if we're going to turn plastic objects contaminated with that into other plastic objects that are out there in the environment and we don't know about that, well, what we're just basically displacing the problem. We're not solving that problem. So they're the sort of deeper thinking that we're starting to do about recycling. 
it's once again, as I said, that invisible toxic chemical aspect that we often don't think about. And um, as we know that the continued growth of chemical use in industrialised society is implicated and related and we need a lot more research on the effect that it's having to directly on our health um, in areas including cancer, birth defects um, and so on. I'm not suggesting that the disease, all diseases are linked to that, but I think the environmental um, pollution is a really understudied area in terms of our health. We need, obviously, to um, understand that in our um, striving to find safer chemicals to do the things that we need to do in our lives, um, that very, very small doses of chemicals can cause diseases, that children and babies are the most vulnerable, that already hundreds of synthetic chemicals are found in human breast milk and in the cord blood of babies and in the womb, and as I mentioned, babies are born with over 200 industrial chemical residues. And chemicals in themselves can act like drugs in our body and disrupt the systems at low levels of exposure. Um, I won't go into this as well because I'm sure you're now aware of it, but um, healthcare institutions have a particular ethical responsibility, I believe, to use products containing chemicals that pose less risk to human health. Um, there's some great initiatives going on around the world already and we've heard some more this morning. And I think there's many benefits to the approach as well. If, you, if you're not appealing to people on that um, particular health protection level, it can also be uh, important in terms of their bottom line. Uh, are they going to, they can also reduce disposal costs and so on. So that might be another way around for people. And just to end on another lovely animal photo, because it's not just humans that are affected by all of this, it's also our, uh, our whole environment and our wildlife is also suffering. This is um, a picture taken on my property, which I'm very lucky to share with uh, many animals. So uh, once again, thank you for the opportunity to speak. I look forward to answering any questions later. I can answer to some extent, you know, is this chemical bad? Is this chemical bad? But um, I just wanted to say National Toxics Network is here as a resource. If you want to refer to us um, in any way that we can help you, um, we, we, we would be willing. And um, I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to do some work together. Thank you.